Hello and welcome to the Keating Chambers Public Procurement Podcast. I'm David Gollantz, a barrister at Keating Chambers, and today I'm joined by Simon Taylor, also a barrister at Keating, who's going to talk about the effect of the Public Procurement Amendment, etc., EU Exit Regulations 2020, which is to say we're going to be looking at how the law stands now that we are well and truly and actually out of the EU uh, and pending any new legislation which may be brought in following the, the government's green paper. Simon, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, David. So Simon and I have in common that we were both partners in law firms for many years uh, before jumping ship and becoming barristers at Keating. Um, and I think we both practiced procurement as a major part of our practice in both solicitors firms and now isn't that right Simon? Yes yes uh, I did I was a I was a competition and procurement partner as, as a solicitor and, and enjoyed it very much but being a barrister is great and, and uh, it's a lot of fun it's quite stressful sometimes but um, it's uh, it's all good. <laughs> I think law is just stressful really isn't it? Um, so you've also you've built up quite a significant practice particularly in um, health in cases for and against the National Health Service. Yes, that's right. Uh, the um, healthcare procurement has has been a, a a big issue since reforms, which started around two thousand and five. It may no longer, if if the government's to be believed, it may in the future no longer be such an issue because they're talking now more about collaboration and not tendering healthcare contracts, and that seems to be the the direction of travel given. That they're excluded, for example, from the EU-UK treaty on procurement. It's going to be it's going to be a big change in the landscape, isn't there? A mixture of political policy and, and change in law is is going to transform public procurement one way or another, for better or worse. It over is over the next two or three years. Um, yeah, yeah, it hasn't really happened yet, but it, but it, it will it will happen. Coming down the track, though. But for the time being, we are living in this sort of slightly odd interim phase between having well and truly left the EU uh, following IP completion day at the end of last year, um, and whatever new legislation um, is, is put in place. And the instrument of managing that, that uh, interim period is primarily, from our point of view, the public procurement amendment, et cetera, EU exit regulations 2020. <laughs> Am I right? Yeah, close. The <laughs> the, uh, the the regulations are, are called the public procurement bracket amendment, etc. Bracket bracket EU exit bracket regulations two thousand and twenty. The PPAR twenty for short. Let's call them the PPAR twenty. That's that sounds a lot easier. Okay, so I mean, do you want to just give us a, a really you know, overall sketch of, of what they do and what they don't do. And then we can perhaps condescend to particulars and, and look at some of the some of the bits and bobs that are particularly relevant. Yeah, sure. What what happened, of course, is that there was there was the withdrawal from the EU in January 2020. And there and under the terms of the, the withdrawal agreement, which was then brought in to legislation through the European Union Withdrawal Act 2020, there was a transition period which went to the end of 2020. So you had exit day, which was the end of January 2020, and then you had IP completion day 
at, at the end of 31st December 2020. And then if you remember, we had that pre-Christmas delight of a mad rush towards a Brexit deal, yes. which was which was our Christmas present, wasn't it, on Christmas Eve, <laughs> when Boris Johnson secured the deal with Brussels. However, before he did that, the PPAR20 were brought in because they needed they needed to do something to prepare in case there was no deal. So, so they, they were originally designed to manage no deal situation. Yeah, no deal or a deal, but but it right. was a, they were always a staging post, right? For something in in the future which would materialise, whether instantaneously with the new Brexit deal or sometime later in the future, and and and, and so in essence, they are a second transition period in substance. There, there are changes that they made and under the, the, the 2020 European Union Withdrawal Act, um, which amended the, the 2018 Act of the same name, there, there was a mechanism whereby the government could adopt regulations which would, would adapt regulations like the procurement regulations, which had been introduced to implement European directives. So the Act allowed the government to introduce regulations which would amend them to what, what, it, what was called cure deficiencies. Right, I and see. By that, and by that, what they, what they meant was that where, for example, it refers to the European Commission, now it's going to refer to the Cabinet Office Minister. So right. that, was a, that was a deficiency. And the underlying premise of all, all of that was that the, the raft of of European regulations in all sorts of areas, but including public procurement, would be just sort of imported into UK domestic law as at the end of the transition period, at the end of December 2020. But they needed to be tweaked in order to cure these deficiencies and remove inappropriate provisions. So what the PPAR 20 did, and that was drafted and brought into legislation in earlier in December 2020 than the Brexit deal was done. What that did is that it recognised that the Act imported the procurement regulations, but, but it cured the problems with them by making certain tweaks. Sure, but but not radically transforming the meaning or the or the thrust of the of the legal provisions. Not radically or really at all, to be honest. I mean in, right. in substance. Right. Okay. So as you say, there are, there are lots of what you might call detail amendments, like instead of saying European Commission, it will say Minister with Cabinet Office, or instead of saying Official Journal, it will say Find a Tender and, and so forth. And I guess, you know, to us, that looks sort of trivial. If you're a procurement official, actually, there's going to be a whole list of things you're going to have to remember to do differently, albeit, yes, in detail, but they're not of great significance and all those things like equal treatment transparency proportionality and so forth still apply the thing that i wondered a bit was do they still mean what they meant what i mean is that transparency for example that's the particular one i i kind of was struck by i mean equal treatment means what it means it's it's fairly clear what equal treatment means there's law on it it means treating like situations alike and unlike situations unlike Transparency, though, is a very EU concept, it seems to me, um, being essentially about the way in which a contracting authority deprives itself or is deprived of discretion. It, it has to specify 
what it's going to do in considerable detail, what you know, what it wants, how it's going to measure what it wants, yeah, and so on. And then it has to stick to that, and then it has to publish details which enable other people objectively to assess whether it has. So it's it's a very extensive and quite onerous obligation. And and as far as I know, has no real foundation in English law. So even in this interim period, does transparency still gonna mean what it meant three months, six months ago? Yeah, I mean there are there are two there are two parts to to the answer to that question. One part is that to a very large degree, the duty of transparency is is what the regulations say it is. So the, so the first example of the duty of transparency is that you publish an advert as an authority for your tender. So that that has changed. So whereas previously the advert had to be placed in the OGU, now there is an e-notification uh, e service for the UK called Find a Tender, and authorities have to publish for new procurements launched after 1st of January 2021, the advert containing substantially the same information as before in find a tender now they, they can also it, it should be added they can also publicize it in the welsh version sell to wales and the northern ireland version of that but they're not uh, importantly allowed to put more information in the welsh version than they are in the english version because that would be yes. unfair on the english i noticed that that's, that's interesting because they also they're not allowed to publish in in sell to wales before yeah, exactly very important just, it's just like the old days with with the ogu and Domestic, so we've now got a sort of sense that the the home nations are are actually uh, rivals, and that you know, Welsh government might favour Welsh businesses, which I suppose is not unrealistic. Well, you've only got to listen to the, the competitive COVID briefings to see that there must be some substance in that. Oh yeah, <laughs> but but I think the 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 point on transparency is that you know so that you publish the the advert, you then during the course furthest for regulation eighty four, which is not 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 amended, save for saying that the Regulation eighty four report can be requested by the Cabinet Office Minister rather than by the European Commission. It can also be requested by the the Welsh ministers or the Northern Ireland Department. The transparency obligation is is set out throughout the regulations as to what you have to do at, at different stages. So you've got your your, your Regulation eighty four report. You have to document all all your key decisions in the course of the tender and the grounds for those decisions. You then, when you've made your award decision, you need to send out a stance letter. So, so you then have the obligations in relation to the, the, the content of, of the stance letter. And that is also set out in the regulations. I mean, of course, it's based on European case law, but, but it's, it's codified in the regulations as to the degree of transparency and the reasons that you have to provide to the, the bidders. So I, I see all that about publication obligations. But nowhere in the regulations does it expressly say, and you can't change your mind. That's an obligation which is imported from case law, isn't it? SEAC uh, yeah. and, and all, all that law on transparency. So I suppose, I mean, yeah. do we rely on the idea of retained EU case law then? Right. So, that, so that's that transparency the other. still means what transparency meant before. Yeah, so that you're that, you're absolutely right. That's the other, that's the other side of the coin, isn't it? The, the other side of transparency, the other meaning of it. Is that, for example, you have to you have to describe the award criteria in the tender documents in a way that the reasonably well-informed and normally diligent tenderer would understand. So they have to they have to be clear. They're, then you have to once you've said what you're going to do, you, you have to do it. You can't 
can't change your mind as it right. that, that's, that's not expressed that's imported from case law that, and that that's imported in case law i mean there are provisions in the regulations as well which refer to the sort of criteria that, that that you can you can put in the tender documents but you're absolutely right there is there's the overriding provision isn't there in regulation 18 which is still there after yeah. brexit which says that you have to act in a in a transparent and um, non-discriminatory and not and let's not forget proportionate um, way under the public contract regulations 2015 all of these concepts are interpreted as you say by by the case law so so the obvious question that you have to have to ask is or what happens to the European case law? Have we freed ourselves from the shackles exactly. of, the, uh, of the European courts? Well, Do have we, we have our sovereignty back? What's the answer? <laughs> so so the, the answer is that we sort of, we sort of do. We're sort the, of free. Yeah, the, the, the position is, and, and again, there are regulations on this. So there are the European Union withdrawal Act 2018, rather than call retained EU case law regulations, and there are specific provisions in the Withdrawal Act which deal with the question of what EU law is treated as retained EU law and retained EU case law for the purposes of interpreting. And in essence, the answer is that, leaving aside for a moment the transitional provisions, which we'll come back to, but in relation to new tenders, the courts, when when being asked, for example, to determine whether a, a new ITN that's published in 2021 is sufficiently clear and transparent uh, to, to meet the principle of transparency, the lower court will be bound by, by the EU case law that was in place as of the end of 2020. Now, if the matter is then appealed, the, the appeal court and also the Supreme Court, the Court of Appeal and the Supreme Court and the equivalent appeal courts in, in Scotland, are able to, to move away from, from the EU retained case law under the normal uh, doctrine of, of precedent. So if it is the, the right thing to do, they, they can move right. away. In addition, insofar as there is an amendment to regulations, which has been which is a post-Brexit amendment, then that can be interpreted in, in, a, in a new way. But, but there aren't really any of substance. So, so that's kind of not going to be particularly relevant. But the, the, the starting point is, is the retained EU case law as of the end of 2020. And the, while the, the, the lower courts can have regard to, to judgments which post-date the end of 2020, they're not, they're not required to follow new judgments, but they are required to follow the retained case law, unless the Court of Appeal moves away from it or the Supreme Court moves away from it. And then, then of course, they can follow the the appeal courts in the UK. Right. So at the appellate level, for example, and and just reversing to just using transparency that we were just talking about just now, if the Court of Appeal or Supreme Court took the view that transparency under the new dispensation ought to mean something different from what it used to mean, uh, that, for example, uh, it might mean that it is all right for a contracting authority to change its mind about evaluation, provided it says so. Uh, that would be that would be possible. I'm not saying that particular example is a likely one. I'm, I just use it as a as a way of illustrating that. Well, it's the, a very good example, isn't it? Because I mean, I, 
to be fair, it's, it's not entirely clear in EU law, is it? I mean, if the tender document says we can we can change this particular rule of procedure, we can change when we whenever we want to, and provided yeah. we explain, then then that may well be permissible under the under the principle of transparency. But you could probably concoct a, a, a I don't know UK specific scenario where where you, there might be an argument to move away from some of the European case law, whether it's on, for example. The, when you clarify ambiguities or, or errors or right. I mean, issues yeah. like that on proportionality where where, where the, there may well be a better a better way of doing things which yeah. the, the, the UK appeal courts could devise then yes it, yes yes they can they can move away and, and they would have you know, due regard to the UK case law on on tideland and clarification of ambiguities but but they could move away and, and they could they could move us in a different direction. That, that is actually right. Yeah, well, that's, that's interesting. I, I mentioned that there is a slightly different position for in relation to transitional arrangements. And, and this is where it does get a, a bit more fruity and interesting. So transitional arrangements, what do I mean by that? This is where a, a procurement procedure is launched before the end of 2020. So if your if your advert went out in December 2020, then the position in terms of the the interpretation of the principle of transparency is slightly different, and and that is that is because the transitional arrangements say that that the, the rules during the transition period, as of the end of 2020, continue to apply, continue to govern. The um, any any procurement procedure that was launched prior to the end of 2020. So the obvious the obvious example of that is one if you have to publish a contract award notice in relation to the the tender award decision, and in terms of sort of you know the, the European Commission being able to request the Regulation 84 report, you would you would need to publish it in the OG. You need to provide your report to the European Commission because you're still governed by by EU law. But a more interesting example would be your example. Well, what if there was an issue as to the to the case law during that period? What, for example, if the UK Court of Appeal had moved away from the the position on Thailand clarification of ambiguities in 2021, but were litigating a procedure that was launched before the end of 2020? And there, my my reading of of the rules under the withdrawal agreement in, in particular. And then the, the way in which the, the withdrawal agreement is uh, is implemented is that the case law, which was in place prior to the end of 2020, would continue to be the relevant case law for the procedure that had been launched before the end of 2020. And, and that, is a, that is as a result of, under the withdrawal agreement, there, there is a particular provision in Article 4 which is different to what we'd be talking about in relation to, to the, the retained EU case law rules. And, and, and that provision effectively says, it's Article 4, 4 and 5. It says that um, a- any, any EU law or concepts or provisions of EU law or their interpreter, interpretation or application are to be interpreted in conformity with the relevant CGEU case law handed down before the end of the transition period. And then it says due regard shall be had to EU case law handed down after the end of the transition period. So it's a different, it's a different formulation. It doesn't say you can move away from it in the Court of Appeal. And it says you have to have due regard 
to 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 changes after the end of 2020 in so, relation to matters covered by by the withdrawal agreement. So taking all that together and and spinning out a slightly extreme but but actually perfectly possible example, you have a a pin a, a prior information notice for a framework agreement in October 2019. The contract notice is published in September 2020. The appointment of the framework occurs in, say, March of this year. Uh, the framework is for four years. No, let, let's let's be exciting and say that it requires extreme a lot, a lot of capital investment, so it's for six years. And in the last year of that framework agreement, we're, we're now up to what 2026. Um, a four-year contract is awarded. An action on that would, are we saying it would still be governed by EU case law that had transpired since since IP completion day, or just that's, that the court would have to have due regard? That's why the way I read it is is that it would be governed. Because yeah, that's what I. That's kind of what I thought. Yeah, Section Seven C of the EU Withdrawal Act. It it says that this implemented the the withdrawal agreement. It says that that. Questions on the validity, mean, or effect around separation agreement law and, and transitional provisions are separation agreement law. Then they have to be decided in accordance with the withdrawal agreement. And the withdrawal agreement says that you have to apply CGU case rise at the end of 2020 and have due regard to cases handed down after that period. So the way I read it, and given given that the transitional, as you say, that the transi- transitional provisions apply to framework tenders, but also call offs. Under frame, yeah. so it would be it would be the uh, the tender, as you say, it could be four years in of a framework agreement. The tender for a call off would be, and, and an issue arises in relation to Thailand um, yes. ambiguities. That the, the, the court of appeal, meanwhile, that has completely moved away from the EU position in the UK, yeah. but, but that the EU law continues to apply to to that framework and to call offs under that framework. The, and and even even where EU law has moved on, due regard has to be had. So yeah, I think the rules are different in relation to separation provisions, uh, separation right. agreement laws. So to some extent, we are stuck with two streams of of jurisprudence for the foreseeable future. We are, and in in reality, in substance, is it really likely that the Court of Appeal or the Supreme Court? Would would really move away from 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 the application of? I mean, the, the fact is that, as we know, that that the TCC has has interpreted the European judgments. So, so we have a body of case law in the UK, but mainly from the TCC and some from the Court of Appeal and Supreme Court, which has already interpreted EU law and, and is and is generally pretty satisfactory. So, is there is there a particular given that and those judgments? Haven't necessarily been been appealed in the past. Is there any particular reason why that formulation, which is based on on EU principles, would be appealed and changed in in the future? Now, there's nothing, nothing obvious. Maybe not an obvious reason, or, or indeed any any clear reason, but it's not an impossibility. And no. certainly, thinking again with one's green paper hat on, um, if some of the changes proposed by the green paper as possibilities, such as the establishment of a a tribunal. Uh, separate from the court or, or anything of that sort would happen. Uh, I think it is possible to imagine that the jurisprudence getting, let's say, a little bit, a uh, little bit more complex than it is now. But 
it's a possibility. It's not something we can we can be sure about. Um, I mean, on the green paper, David. I mean, on that. Yeah, I think it's important. For example, when the green paper talks about setting out principles that that will guide the future procurement regime, I do think it's important. I mean, not least because of this twin track rule in relation to transitional arrangements, but in general, it, it seems logical and important to me that those principles do align with. With, with the very significant body of jurisprudence that's been developed uh, in the EU courts. And that, that may sound like a horribly Europhile position, but uh, it seems to me, for example, proportionality, I mean, we've discussed the fact, the omission of the, the concept of proportionality in, in the green paper. And that's a very important, it's a very important principle. It's in the regulations. It's a very important principle of, of, of European law, which, which tempers some of the excesses of of litigation and allows authorities to to act in a in a reasonable and proportionate way rather than completely over, overdoing everything. So it seems to me that that it's relevant to the to the whole green paper debate. This, I think it is, and and, and to in particular perhaps what has always seemed to me. I, I don't know. I've been doing procurement law now for oh, almost twenty years. God help me. Um, but it's always seemed to me there was a a tension between understanding public procurement as primarily um, a, a public law instrument, as, as uh, Sedley famously put it, something which is about correcting public wrongs rather than asserting private rights. Um, and on the other hand, seeing it just as a branch of tort, really, uh, uh, for you know the commercial compensation of people who've been deprived of profit. And um, the, uh, the English courts have rather tended, I would say, to the latter. Um, interpretation to just seeing it as it were philosophically almost as as a, a statutory tort. Somebody's been deprived of profit; they need to be compensated if they can show causation. As opposed to the what I would say is more like the European court approach of seeing it as a way of controlling public authorities, partly with a view to something which perhaps has never been seen as quite as much of an issue in in the UK, namely corruption. Um, which in continental Europe, some you know, is openly acknowledged as as more of an issue, and something which the procurement rules are there to address and protect against. So we'll see how we go. I think, but it yeah. may be that we head even more towards the the uh, conceptualising of public procurement law as just a a tort. Well, much of it is in the remedy, isn't it? So. The yep. easier it is to lift the suspension, the, the, the more often you're into a damages claim, the more like private law it is. The more difficult it is to lift the suspension, the, the, the more you're into um, public law remedies, so, such as set aside, and the closer you are to public law. So I think that, that you know, the review of American society is, is, is pretty important to, to the way that this kind of law is going to be characterised in the future. For sure, for sure. Um. Just coming back to some of the sort of more detailed changes um, that uh, that the um, what do you call them the PPAR twenty was it <laughs> PPAR or PPAR don't mind all right PPAR sounds a bit more dignified doesn't it the PPAR twenty make to the the regs um, I wondered about regulations eighty nine and ninety which govern who. Um, what sort of economic operators can can have uh, standing to to make claims? Do you want to yeah. just sort of talk about that a bit? There's there's a very there's a very complicated 
three condition test that is that is introduced in in regulation 90 but effectively what what they do is at the moment regulation 89 under under the old rules gave economic operators from the eu the the, the right to avail of the regulations to to bring actions in in the uk that that is now limited to the uk and gibraltar of course the yeah. um, of course and whereas regulation 90 has been a amended substantively. Regulation 90 previously was uh, the, the one that dealt with GPA operators. And, and now the, the, there's a slightly artificial wording that's been introduced into Regulation 90 in recognition of the fact that it was drafted before the UK had become a member in its own right of the GPA, before the EU-UK Trading Cooperation Agreement. The, but So I won't go through the conditions because they're, they're rather dull and the, those who wish to read them can can do so at the leisure. But in essence, what, what what it says is that it's it's the same as before. You know that, that, that if if you are a an economic operator from a GPA country, and previously you had the ability to to avail of the regulations because the contract was of a type covered by the EU schedules to to the GPA. Then, then you you would be able to um, you, you you will still be able to to bring action under the under the regulations. And then, so essentially, a, that just says if you could have sued, you still can. Yeah, it it does in essence, and there's a slight complication as well in relation to third country treaties. But again, it it's not really any different to the way the rules were before. It's just that no one really paid any attention to them. So the the, the point is under under Regulation 90 is that it's it preserves the status quo. The the complication becomes when you factor in the two things really one one that the the UK then after the PPR twenty were adopted the UK then acceded in its own rights to the GPA and the GPA member as of the first of January they right. then published their own their own schedules that's one one development and then the other development is of course the the trading cooperation agreement with the EU so. Changes will need to be made to reflect the fact that those those two, of those two developments, and I think I believe that they'll be done further to the trade bill, which I don't think is an act yet, but that's going to enable some amendments to 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 in recognition of of the the international treaty that has been entered into. However, in substance, what you need what you need to look at is well, what is the difference between the, the, the UK schedules and and the, and the EU schedules in relation to the GPA answer, so far as I can see, nothing. They're, they're substantially identical. That's one question. So that doesn't really make any difference in terms of access for non-EU GPA economic operators to the regulations. The question is, what about EU operators? Do they now have preferential access in relation to certain procurements in the UK over non-EU GPA economic operators? Answer. Because of the terms of the TCA. Because of the terms of the TCA. They, no, it, it's not as a, ter- as, a as, as a result of the PPAR, because that just talks about, that was pre-TCA, that talks about GPA schedules. Right. So, but, but as of the TCA, and given the TCA has been implemented in UK law by the, the Future Relationship Act, the EU-UK Future Relationship Act, then my, my, my reading of it, of it is that insofar 
as the TCA creates further rights for economic operators in relation to accessing public procurement than the GPA, and it does, and we can come on to explain that, then, then that means, in essence, that for certain contracts, G- EU operators will have rights under the regulations, whereas GPA operators won't. Gosh, that's exciting. Now, what that will mean in practice, you know, so give you an example. The GPA schedules for US operators exclude that there's an exclusion for sub-central authorities. Right. So, so that means, and I'm not sure this has ever arisen in, in a case, but that, that means if you've got a local authority procuring a procuring a contract and you've got a, a US operator bidding, then they won't technically have the right under the regulations to, to bring an action. Now they might, if they were discriminated against, they might bring an action at JR or, or some other sort of action, but but they wouldn't be covered because that the GPA schedule does doesn't cover sub-central yeah. contracts. And the reason for that, of course, is that EU operators don't get any access to to US sub-central contracts. Sure. Sure. So in that circumstance, you, you have a situation where you've got an EU operator, which is bidding, and they they can sue under the regulations, but the but the US operator couldn't. And in reality, these operators all establish subsidiaries in the UK to bid. So whether it will make you know any difference in in essence, I, I'm not sure. But the um there there is there are some distinctions, and we can we can we can talk about those briefly, although it is sort of diving into the detail. Well, I think we should, because I, certainly for my part, I, I sort of quickly realised uh, at the beginning of this year that, that we are going to have to get to know the TCA, at least insofar as it is, you know, impacts public procurement. And, and it does. Um, I, I have heard, I don't know how reliably, that originally the UK didn't want to include any terms about public procurement in the TCA, but, but they had to, uh, and that it was done rather late on in the negotiations. Um, which may perhaps explain some some of the um, features of it, but but yeah, I, I think one of the one of the things that is going to happen is that public procurement lawyers are going to need to have much more regard to the treaties, uh, which, as it were, underlie the trade. Um, it's not just going to be a question of looking at the regs or the directives anymore. It's going to be a question also of looking at the status of a potential claimant, whether the trade agreement that, that's relevant confers more or fewer rights and so forth. So do you, do you want to talk a bit about the TCA? Program? Yeah, just talk about two, two examples of this. Well, one is that it's, a, it's, it's perhaps a little-known fact that the GPA schedules don't cover light-touch regime services. So in, in, under the regulations and, and the directives, um, healthcare services historically but also education services and legal services, tenders, et cetera. Light-touch regime services are subject to a slightly lighter regime, but they're not covered by GPA schedules. So again, taking our example, and, on a, and, and these, these healthcare services contracts can be quite large. And on a, on a large um, healthcare service tender, a US bidder bidding with a US entity would not, would not have rights under, under the, the, the regulations. As a, as a GPA economic operator. Now, under the EU treaty, under the, the TCA, the, well, what it effectively does is it, it, it gives reciprocal rights between UK and, and EU operators to public procurement. And 
it imports the GPA rights. So that, that's a given. So whatever's in the GPA schedule, you, you have a right to. Right. But it, it, then it adds certain things. So what, one of the things it adds is, is the light touch regime, with the exception of, of healthcare services. So th- this, I think, is an important development. And I, I don't know how much publicity that this has had, but in the past, one of, one of, the, one of the difficulties that the NHS has had, NHS England, when, when choosing whether or not to go out for tender for, for healthcare services contracts is, is, is weighing up how far they had to under, under EU law. And, and it was a problem because the regulations covered healthcare tenders. They, they were generally above threshold, albeit at a large threshold, and generally they had to go out to tender. What this treaty does is it removes, it removes healthcare services and administration services in relation to healthcare from the scope of the coverage of the, the reciprocal procurement obligations. And they're not covered by the GPAI. So they're not covered by, by the regulations as amended. It, and, and they're not covered by the TCA. Now, just to be clear what I mean by this, they are still covered by the regulations. So, so UK authorities, until the regulations are amended, and I have no doubt they will be quite soon, a, a UK authority still has to tender for light-touch regime services. This is about who can sue them when it all goes wrong. Right? And the GPA economic operator, they can't. The EU, um, the EU economic operator can, but not in relation to, to, to healthcare services. So that's one example where you've got three layers. You know, you, well, there are some things that the UK operators can sue on under the regulations. There are some things that EU operators, and then there are other things that the GPA operators can. One of the, one of the, complex bits of 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 the relationship between uh the tca and the gpa uh and indeed the existing regulations in in this case the utilities regulations seems to be the position of privatized utilities whether they are treated as uh, contracting entities contracting authorities or not and in particular what about those utilities which applied for and, and received exemption from the utilities regulations under the EU dispensation, uh, which said that if you were exposed to competition, then you, you might not be treated uh, as a contracting entity. Did, is, is there any clarity around that? Well, there is a bit, David, in, in that the, the PPAR20, of course, they amend the utility regs as well as the, the public contract regs. And, it, right. and the, the mechanism that we're talking about here, there's a, there's a, a mechanism whereby the European Commission t- declares effectively that, that a particular activity is, is subject to competition and therefore shouldn't be subject to the procurement rules. Th- this is covered by Regulation 34 and 35 of the, of the utilities regs. And these have been amended. And, and what the amendments do, there's still the exclusion for activities which which are directly exposed to competition on markets to which access is not restricted. And the, the specific exclusions that have been granted already by the European Commission are, are still valid. So in particular, there, there are exclusions for electricity generation, electricity supply and exploration of oil and gas. So that, those, those are retained in, in, the, in the amended regulations. But what is removed is the, the mechanism whereby you can apply to the European Commission to remove right. an activity from the regs on the basis of exposure to competition. And it's just been deleted. It hasn't been replaced by which you'd expect, 
by another mechanism whereby you can apply to the cabinet office minister. It's just been removed. And so, is that because of the provisions of the TCA, do you think, which do seem to be potentially to catch privatised utilities if they are public undertakings, I think it is. And this, again, is, is in the annex. If they've, got, if they've got special and exclusive rights. Yes, yes, that's right. Privately owned procuring entities that have as one blah, blah. So it looks as though from now on, that possibility of being exempted has gone. And I suppose that makes sense because who would have the authority to make such an exemption? The European Commission, no, because we're no longer in the EU. Uh, And you wouldn't expect it to be purely a national matter because this plays into international obligations. I think think that, that, that may be right. So if you've got your exemption in, you're laughing. And if you haven't, then you may be in trouble. But but I think that probably the, the, the point to bear in mind with this with this treaty is that it it was cobbled together in, in haste. And yes. um, I, I'm sure there are, you know, there are many issues in this treaty which will be the subject of, of ongoing review. And that may may very well be one of them. For sure. So we'll we'll be podcasting on a six-monthly basis for the rest of our professional careers. Excellent. Um, I I think we've covered most of the ground that I had in mind that we might. I don't know whether there are things, Simon, that you think we we haven't covered that we should. I mean, there are one or two oddities in the in the changes that are perhaps worth worth referring to because they they do come up they do come up a lot. And one of them is it's not so much an oddity, but the Regulation eighty four reports. If you remember, you've still got you've still got a position whereby they have to be filled in, but they only have to be provided to anyone if the Cabinet Office Minister asks for them. And you sort of wonder, well, what, what is the point of the Cabinet Office Minister asking for them? What was the Cabinet Office Minister going to do about it? So whereas in the past, you know, the, the reason why the European Commission would ask for the Regulation 84 reports is they, they then could bring an investigation against the authority. So you, you don't have that, that threat of, of a non-judicial investigation anymore. And now you may do under the Green Paper proposals. So that's a bit of an oddity. The other one I thought was, was a bit odd was in relation to abnormally low tenders. So there, and this perhaps reflects the fact that this was a very contentious issue right up until the end of the of the negotiations of the Brexit Treaty, but it's the, the issue of state aid. Yes. So under the abnormally low tender regulations, under the old rules, the presence of state aid, which couldn't be justified under the, the, the European Treaty, was a consideration for, for abnormally low tender reviews and c- could be a basis for excluding a bid based on abnormally low, low tender. That, that, that reference has been removed in the PPAR 20. So it's no longer a, it's no longer a, a basis for a possible removal or a possible elimination of a bid, which is very odd when you think about it, given given that it was always going to be clear that the UK was going to be subject in one way or another to WTO rules. And so there is subsidy control under, right. under the WTO rules. And, and, and there, is, there, are, there are now reciprocal obligations in relation to subsidy controls under, under the TCA. So interestingly, the TCA does refer in the procurement context 
to subsidy being a, a potential consideration for abnormally low turnover. So I, I think in, at least in relation to EU economic operators, it, it, it effectively reintroduces this as a, as a potential consideration. And it's right. logical, isn't it, that it would be a potential consideration, given that there is now an albeit very substantially weakened subsidies regime. Yes. Then it does make sense that, that if, if there's any risk that, that a public body could take back a, a subsidy that's been granted, which, which contravenes the, the subsidy regime, that that would be relevant to an abnormally low tender review. So I, I think it's a bit of a watch this space, but certainly the regulations are a little unsatisfactory in, in the way that they've just removed any reference to, to subsidies. One other point, perhaps of interest, is that under the under the regulations, and this is Regulation Fifty Six of the PCRs, the um, the authority is able to to decide not to award a contract to the most economically advantageous tender if they are in breach of certain international treaties relating to environmental, social, labour law. Now, those international treaties, the list of international treaties, is a list which has been ratified by the EU. So going forward, the way the way the amendment works is that the cabinet office minister is able to de-ratify treaties. So is able to take treaties off the list. Potentially, could add treaties as well. Though that perhaps is less less likely with with this government. But but um the what's interesting as well is that the Welsh ministers and the Northern Ireland department have retained a right of veto. Over over any deratification of one of these treaties, so I thought that was again a, an, inter- an interesting example of um, exercise of devolved powers. There are really two two sort of themes here, aren't there? That they're all the kind of um, detailed changes or amendments or, or bits and bobs, as it were, which, as I, I think I said earlier, seem a bit trivial to the lawyer, but maybe more significant to the procurement official who's you know making sure that they've got all their processes in apple pie order and then there are the the sort of rather larger themes which are about things like the meaning of transparency the applicability of eu jurisprudence before and after um uh, ip completion day uh and the sort of the the influence of trade agreements or the interplay as it were between trade agreements and um uh, and our regulations, and then of course it's all going to be thrown up in the air and changed uh, sometime in the autumn if the government lives up to its timetable and introduces its new legislation. But for the time being, we are all going to have to keep up with this sort of interim situation. And who knows it? It may last rather longer than it's intended to. Interim situations often seem to do that. And interestingly, the. Um under the PPAR 20, and this is you know, just, just an aside, if nothing happens, then the only operators who will be able to sue under the regulations will be UK and Gibraltar economic operators, but plus EU economic operators as a result of the trading cooperation agreement. But GPA operators, there needs to be something needs to change because at the moment, regulation 90 ceases to have any effect in December right. 2021. But, right. um, that is that is uh, going to need to be addressed, obviously, because now the UK is a member of the GPA. Right. So any GPA operators listening to this or those advising them, get yourselves uh, established in Gibraltar. Quick quack. I'm sure you'll be extremely welcome. Simon, thanks very much for taking the time to uh, pick our way through the uh, thorny and winding path of the interim law. 
And I hope that those listening have both enjoyed it and, and found at least some of it helpful or profitable in, in clarifying some of the less clear aspects of the current situation we're in. Let me close by plugging our other public procurement podcasts. So we've got three which deal with various aspects of the green paper um, and uh, by encouraging you to listen out for our future podcasts.